Hello, and thank you for listening to the Avid Reader Events Podcast. For more information about this event or any of our other events, please visit our website. So I will now introduce Rihanna Patrick, who is the In Conversation partner for this evening. During her 16 years at the ABC, Rihanna has worked across Triple J News, television documentaries, Radio National, and co-hosted an aviation podcast. She currently has a national Sunday night show named after her, which she calls hashtag ABC Re, R-H-I, <laughs> on ABC Radio. She is also the Queensland representative on, on the Love Oz YA committee, which promotes Australian young adult fiction and those who write it. Now, Anne-Marie Priest, to my left, teaches literature at Central Queensland University in Rockhampton. She is the author of Great Writers, Great Loves, The Reinvention of Love in the 20th Century, and has published essays on Gwen Harwood and Christina Stead, as well as on Virginia Woolf, Henry James, French feminist thought and Christian mysticism. Her book manuscript on the role of vocation in the lives of Australian women writers, A Free Flame, the book we're here for tonight, was highly commended for the 2016 Dorothy Hewitt Award. I'll now pass you over to Rihanna for tonight's In Conversation. Thank you. Anne-Marie, when I read this book, um, and I feel that anyone in the audience who's ever had a father say no to them will be able to instantly warm to these women that you've mentioned in your book. And um, it made me think of my Islander father, actually, whose birthday it is today on International Women's Day, ironically, who had some very uh, choice ideas about where Islander young women should end up. And I'm glad that I've done none of anything that he thought I was going to do. Um, Emery, there are so many themes that run through this book, and I think there are so many that also still have a place, unfortunately, in today's society and where we are today when it comes to women and the way that they view their own creativity and also the way that they might underplay their talents. And, I mean, why did you pick these four women to start with? I mean, what drew you to their stories? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I, all four of them are amazing writers. I mean, they're, to me, they're women who are also artists, who produce great work. And they're not really as well known as they should be, I don't think. So they're women who did something that was difficult to do at that time for women. And, but I think perhaps we were more used to it now and more used to thinking of women as able to do that. So we perhaps, they haven't had the recognition that they need, or, you know, it's, we need to know about their life stories, not just what they wrote, but who they are, and it's Virginia Woolf who said, we think back through our mothers if we are women, and we need to know our mothers' stories, so that we can think about who we are and what we want, and as an Australian woman writer, these are my mothers, so I want to know what they did. And it was really much a lot about exploring what they thought about themselves as writers and how that clashed and intersected with the culture itself and what the culture thought about women as writers. So how do you go about researching Australian women writers of the particular period that you're looking at when we know quite clearly that sometimes our histories are not always written? Yeah, well, exactly. Um, one of the things that really struck me about researching these women is of the four in my book only one 
has had a biography written about her. That's Christina Stead. And she's had a lot of international acclaim. So, and that biography is by Hazel Rowley and is amazing. But the other three women, Gwen Harwood, Ruth Park, and uh, Dorothy Hewitt, they, there were no biographies written about them at all. So all I had to go on was their own biographical material. So that often they wrote personal essays. I looked at heaps and heaps of interviews, which I loved doing, just hearing them describing themselves in their own terms. And the National Library has lots of uh, like audio recordings of, of these women. They, they do a wonderful job, actually, recording the history of Australian culture. So I listened to that, and I looked at their own autobiographical writing letters where I could get hold of them. Ruth Park uh, has wrote her own autobiography. But, of course, you don't always tell the whole truth in your autobiography. You construct a, a version of yourself that is certainly, in Ruth Park's case, that, that fits with what people think about you and your career. So there was a lot of trying to read between the lines, and certainly like in, in relation to Christina Stead, I talk about this in the book, that what, what she said about herself and her career as a writer was very different from the actual reality of that. And she, she downplayed her, her vocation, her sense that being a writer was what she had to do. And she, she just, towards the end of her life, she was like, Meh, I didn't care about being a writer. It just happened. I just turned out to be a writer. But actually, all I really wanted to do was, was fall in love and, and marry a man. And, yeah, so I talk a lot about why she might have done that so persistently. Said, you know, no, nah, I didn't care about writing. When actually it was the passion of her life. It was the thing that drove her the most. And it's interesting because all four women seem to have similar stories when it comes to that downplaying, um, how they view their own writing later in life when they look back at their achievements. Um, but one of the things that really interested me in reading this was how all four of them from before they were adults had all made a decision that they were going to write and this was going to be their vocation and they were going to do it and it was going to happen and that is that journey is really interesting for all four of these women yeah that was something that really drew me to their stories it's especially these women were all born in the first three decades of the 20th century and that was a time when women weren't really writers and especially poor women weren't writers and especially women with children weren't writers I mean, there were a few exceptions women who were writers who didn't have children mostly and or who were wealthy or who just had those opportunities but they were the exception and so for these little girls to, to think you know, that's for me. I want to be a writer. That's who I am. In a, in a world that said women don't do that, and, and if you want to be happy, you really just need to fall in love and get married and have children. But to do that, how did that come about? And it's like someone like Ruth Park, she says that she didn't even have access to any books until she was seven or eight years old. And I'm kind of like, and yet she was writing with chalk on the back of the of the of the door in her little in her little hut with her with her parents. She was like how did that sense of this is what I want to do, I want to be the person with a chalk in my hand, without even a book there. So, And it's all to do with being drawn to stories and understanding that storytellers are powerful people, but then trying how a woman who culturally is not a powerful person puts herself into that role, that position of power, and that comes back to what you're saying about downplaying. When women do do that, they're all like, Yep, I did write that, but you know it's not really that important, and um, you know it, it's not really that 
significant and I'm not really a great writer. That's Ruth Park. Yeah, Ruth, I'm not a novelist. I just did this thing. Yeah, I'm not really an artist. Yeah, and they all were kind of like, oh, it's just just a little thing that I do and not actually something. I don't think I put this in the book, but when I was reading about this, I was reading Elizabeth Bishop, who's an American poet, amazing poet, and I was reading an interview with her and she was saying that she... She was apologising for being egotistical because she thought that you had to be egotistical to be a writer. And she says, look, I don't feel like I'm egotistical, but I know I must be because I became a writer. So I'm really sorry about that. It's sort of like it's it's so bad for women to be egotistical, first of all. You wouldn't want to be that. But also the fact that even if you don't feel that it's all about you, you have to... You kind of still have to apologise just for being bold enough to put stuff into print and say, "I think I want to I think I want to write." It's interesting that you mention, um, you know, the pressure that they felt, particularly if they were wives or they were mothers. And I think Gwen Howard feels that the most in this, you know, in what you've written, that if she writes, she's selfish. Um, but the journey that she has, I feel there's a point where something that happens in her life is kind of the physical manifestation of what is really going on with her and where she views her writing. Yeah, yeah. She certainly struggled. The inner conflict that she experienced was so powerful, feeling so driven to be a writer and yet really feeling that if she was a writer, she couldn't be a good mother and a good wife. And if she wasn't a good mother and a good wife, she wouldn't be happy because that's what makes women happy. So trying to fit all of that together. But, and she, she made time to write somehow. I mean, these women all had incredible reserves of energy, I have to say. And she had four children. And it wasn't until she was, I guess she would have been in her late 50s, maybe even early 60s, she finally had she, what she called the, the only room of my own I've ever had which was a little cottage owned by one of her children as a holiday cottage that she was the caretaker of. And she used to go down there and she took books and, and she, used to, she used to write down there in, in peace and quiet. And there were just birds and, and the, the bush and the sea and it was such a restorative place for her. And then one weekend some squatters broke in and burnt the place down. And she, she just, she, I know so much about this because she wrote in letters and also she wrote a really powerful poem about this called Herringate. And she describes how she just had this recurring dream that she was returning to the cottage, which was Herringate, and she put her hand out to open, and it, and it wasn't burnt down, it was still there, and she put her hand out to, to open the door and she realised that her hand was a skeleton and that she had actually died, that the cottage was still there. It's a really powerful poem. And so, we're, yeah, it's kind of like herself as an artist, her creative self had died in that fire, not so much that place, or that place was like a symbol symbol for her oh, it's, it's a really, really powerful poem and event mm. Yeah, and that, I mean that's the thing that you, you know, you feel quite sorry for her because she's waited all of this time to have that space, she keeps talking about, you know, I have time now to do this writing that I've put to one side because I am a mother and I am a, a wife and then this happens and the way that she reacts to that happening in what she writes after that but then also how she is later in life about what she's written when she you know, uh, is looking back at what she has 
written and, and how she feels about that when she's asked about it. Yeah, that's really interesting too. It's another variation of, of what Christina said, said about denying her writing. She tends to say, and I quote this in the book because I love the line, she says, it's no great shakes if baby wakes and the world has lost a sonnet. And at the time when she had the babies, she was just desperate, frantic, and so angry at all the impositions on her time, the stupid, pointless impositions on her time, not so much the children, but the social role of being the wife and being available, making the sandwiches and getting the lunch and getting the tea and doing the dishes. And, and you know, I talk about housework and people are always like, oh, you know, it's only housework. But I was reading somewhere, sidetrack, but something like uh, the average woman in the 60s spent seven hours a day on domestic work. And if you think about what it was like to wash without a washing machine or to, you know, just the amount of physical work involved was huge. And, and Gwen's husband was kind of like, you know, I don't mind if you write, if you want to do that, but obviously you have to do all this other stuff first, which is why. So I, I'm losing my thread here. What was your question? Sorry. <laughs> I was going on the journey because this was really interesting. Oh, right. <laughs> Sorry. But it was just about, how, you know, how she looks back at her own writing when she oh, has right. won awards and she's got yeah. the accolades that she was after. But, again, the downplaying that goes on in, their, in the later lives of these women that we read here. Yeah, exactly. So at the time, very angry. And she wrote some really angry poems, which are wonderful and I think <laughs> underappreciated. Um, and she wrote them under pseudonyms. She had a male pseudonym and uh, another female pseudonym, so she could distance herself from that. But later in life, it was all, oh, having children was marvellous. I loved it. And, you know, it really doesn't matter if you, you know, what, what's a poem or two in the grand scheme of things? And, you know, don't worry. It's all fine. I've, I've come to terms with it. So, again, that whole kind of, you know, writing is not what matters. Having children is what matters. Being a good parent, being a good person is what matters. But that's, that's only one level of her... Dis that's the public discourse. And the private one is... <laughs> it's like, why can't I have time to do what I need to do? And why do you think that was, um, Anne-Marie? Why publicly they would say, this isn't a vocation, I'm not a professional, this isn't what I actually do. But privately in the letters that you found, they, they, are, they are calling themselves professional. They're talking about, mm. you know, their writing and the way that they feel about their writing, which is completely different to the public perception. Yeah, I, I think the real reason is simply that it was so culturally unacceptable to be a writer or a woman. And I mean, it's, I think that has changed somewhat because of these women, actually, or, and, and other women like them. But it really was a sense that a writer, the ideal of a kind of the romantic idea of a writer, they're independent, they're autonomous, they're transcendent. You know, they have people bringing them meals. They're not obviously serving meals, please. And so in, in a case of a woman that gets translated and this independent becomes selfish and autonomous becomes, you know, horrible basically that the same old double standard so they were worried that if they admitted to being ambitious and to being writers they were admitting that actually they weren't really successful women they weren't very good women they were they were selfish and egotistical and that's like oh nobody wants to be that and it, certainly the 19th century views of women who wrote were still very much in play in the 20th century and it really was hard, it's almost hard it's funny because being a writer has a lot of cultural value in one way, but it also has this sense of being a particular type of person. That's a person who has something to say that the world should listen to, and that's the kind of person 
that's the kind of thing that a woman isn't and can't be. So it's like to say, to be a writer, I have to say, I've got something to say that's worth listening to. So they, they were able to make that claim co covertly, but they couldn't make it overtly. So they did it by writing, but when they were sitting in an interview situation, they were like, oh, no, 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 just, you know, nothing too serious, just... Just a, a hobby I did with my embroidery. <laughs> exactly, yeah. That's um, Christina Stead, who constantly, whenever she was asked about her hobbies, would say, yes, embroidery and, and botany or something. Natural history. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she tried to create an image of herself as a, you know, a happily married woman with, you know, just fossicking with the housework and, you know, turning off the story every now and then, here and there, in between uh, tending her husband's needs. Nothing could be further from the truth. She was just driven as a writer. And she actually said, uh, you know, I hate... She wanted them to live in hotels all the time because if they weren't in hotels, she had to do the housework. She's just like, I, I don't have time to do this. So, but that was a time when it was taken for granted that, that women would do all the housework. Of course, that doesn't happen now, so that's good. No, there was a survey the other day that said Australian men do a lot of housework. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Well, if we look at um, that notion of vocation and how these four women viewed that, um, there is one, one Australian woman in here who you write about. She devoted herself to the idea of the artist. Who was that? Oh, to the idea of the artist. As in, she knew from a very young age what was expected of her if she was to be a writer. Oh. And she wanted to be this bohemian oh. writer who had many lovers, no husbands, just <laughs> lovers. Yeah, Dorothy Hewitt. Right, sorry, I see. I was thinking a capital A artist. And yeah, <laughs> Dorothy's wonderful because she is actually out of the four, she's the one who is like, do I have something really important to say? Yes, I do. <laughs> Does it matter that I get to write? Yes, it does. She really, but so she was really out there, and um, yeah, she was when she was a student. She used to wear a black beret and and you know wear velvet clothes, and you know she just really played the the bohemian artist to the hilt. And she really couldn't see why she shouldn't do that. But the, her story is so sad because she just went at it, full in a gate, and just completely doing you know recklessly living this really wild bohemian life that she thought this is what writers do this is what artists do she wanted to be an actor as well and uh, yeah it, it all ended very badly for her well, well ended this is another thing you learn from these stories at, at 21 it, that's not the end but it seemed like the end for her and, and that, but then she went kind of on, on hiatus for, for 15 years before she started writing again with a slightly a slightly more subdued approach having learned that yeah Society is not really going to accept women who are going to be outrageous like that. But also um, someone who had very supportive parents. Her parents were all up for her having this ideal, but there was just that one thing that they weren't really happy with, and that's when they started to pull the support away. And I think this is where the fathers come into play with these authors. And her father in particular was really not happy with her idea of just having lots of lovers. <laughs> Yeah, and it's really interesting that to her that was a part of being an artist. But it's also part of the freedom of being a woman. She, was, she thought that as an artist she would be exempt from those rules that say that women have to be pure before they marry. And this was in the late 30s and early 40s. And she found that she really wasn't exempt. Her, her father, her parents, exactly, went from being very supportive to 
just trying to trying to basically keep her in her room, and they they subjected her to obsessive surveillance to make sure that who she was with and what she was doing. And it's really to read now; it's really unpleasant and unsavoury. You know, this kind of obsessive focus on exactly what she was doing. But uh, yeah, it wasn't just her parents; it was the wider community as well. And yeah, she she certainly felt that that the community just turned on her, and she thought. She didn't need. She thought that all admire her. She thought she didn't need that. The ones who didn't, but in fact, to have everyone turn against you is just so destructive, and you don't have that support. And she just crumpled. And she wasn't really expecting it either, because she thought, you know, I'm doing this. I'm committing myself to living this ideal and to living how an author should live. And it comes as a bit of a surprise to her. And she's got to kind of change the focus of which way she's going to go with her writing, but also with her own life. Yeah, she's a very, uh, yeah, she does every, nothing by halves. So after she actually, uh, after this, this disaster of realising that she really couldn't continue this way, <laughs> she joined the Communist Party, as you do, I mean, and devoted herself to bettering mankind. And again, that's the subjugation of it submersion of the individual ego in the greater good so she's kind of completely eschewing the bohemian and going straight into this really rigid system that 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 where she felt that she didn't have to take responsibility for her own decisions couldn't possibly mess things up and could be guaranteed of actually making a difference and doing good things so she but and she was going to keep writing she was going to keep writing for the communist cause but she couldn't really do it she found that trying to write to a particular ideological point of view even though she was completely you know supportive of that yeah she so she did a few pieces which are which are good but essentially she stopped writing and she just became completely devoted to her her de facto husband and their children and her communist cause which meant she had an open house and people came and went and you know it was it turned out to be very fruitful for her later in life but she completely turned her back on her writing identity for that time and then you look at the father that ruth had who, you know, um, I think it, it, could, it would be called fat shaming these days. Oh, Christina. Christina, yeah. yes, sorry. <laughs> yeah. There were so many father issues in this, and yeah. I related to pretty much most of them. Um, <laughs> yeah. Which was just, uh, yeah, I've got no words for that. But um, the, the fat shaming um, is really quite intense with yeah. Christina's story, and it's interesting to see her come through that, and I think that that we even see these four women continue with their writing and continue through what they're going through to deliver what we see now, um, I think is a testament to them and how strong they were in just um, keeping to pursue, despite the fact they didn't think it was a vocation or a profession yet. Yeah. But Christina's father is just absolutely terrible to her. Yeah. If anyone has read The Man Who Loved Children and also For Love Alone, that it's based on her own father, the father in both of those stories and her own reaction to that. So when I started doing this research and finding some of her personal writings and reading her letters, a lot of which have been published, and, you know, that the pain that cries out of those books, which is, I, I find The Man Who Loved Children almost too hard to read. It's just agonising. And that's, that's one of Christina Stead's great gifts as a writer is that she is just so authentic. She can, she can make you feel everything. But, yeah, so this was actually her experience with her own father, who from the time she was pubescent, basically, made her feel ashamed of her body 
and to the point, and she, apparently she wasn't actually fat, but she was a young woman entering puberty and her father just and it, it, you know, unrelentingly attacked her and she ended up starving herself. She says that in For Love Alone, one of the things that happens in For Love Alone is this, this young woman decides to save money so that she can t- be her own scholarship and take herself overseas to study at the Sorbonne. And uh, so she, to save money, she doesn't catch the ferry and she doesn't buy food. I mean, she's still living at home, but... And so she walks everywhere. And there, you know, so she really becomes really, really thin. And when she finally gets to London, she's got a job and she's, she suddenly finds that she actually doesn't stop these privations and she's sort of like well I just I don't really know why I didn't stop I just kept doing that and that a psychologist would probably be able to explain exactly what's going on there that that need to punish herself and to control her sexuality and she also writes about how she thinks her lover Bill fell in love with her because he could count her ribs quote unquote so that idea that you're only acceptable if you're really skinny but the damage that her father did to her really makes me angry. And I really wanted to, to, to point that out a bit in this piece because, as you say, she actually did rise above that. She kind of turned the tables in a spectacular way by writing these books that revealed this man and, and men like him, kind of very exuberant men who can also that people love because they're storytellers and they've got this lovely flow of words and they're exciting and they create a sense of community. But underneath that is this really bullying, violent, hidden, hidden hatred of women. And that's really evident in Christina's work. But as I say, funnily enough, it was like the grit in the, in the oyster because it actually produced some of her greatest works. Do you think that was one of her best attributes was the way that she was able to even uh, get men to think about their behaviour because of the way that she'd written her male characters in her books. I'd love to think so. Yeah, she's, she's a writer who's very hard to dismiss if you read her work. And she said that, yeah, men used to come up to her, she says, in the street and say, I can't believe that man, uh, her, the, the, Sam Pollitt, the, in the man who loved children, um, I hope I'm not like that. And she said... If they were worried about that, then they weren't. The ones who really were like that never even knew. They <laughs> just, yeah. What I liked about this book as you make your journey through it is you get to Ruth Park's story. And for me, not knowing a lot about Australian women writers, I thought, excellent. This has started off well. Ruth looks like she's going to make it. She refers to her vocation. She says she's a writer. We're going to get there. And then it changes. And I was like, no. <laughs> Tell me about, you know, what we see with Ruth and the, and the journey that she goes on with starting out as, you know, this person who would write and she would write for money and she becomes a bit of an entrepreneur. Yeah, oh, she's amazing. She was, from the start, she was really determined that she was only going to be a writer. She wasn't going to have a day job. And she was from a really working-class background, really poor background. During the Depression, her father was sick and they lost everything and she, the children were farmed out to different relatives and they, you know, they lived in two rooms. And you know, This is real poverty. And again, to come from that to, I want to be a writer, and her options seem to be study teaching or study nursing. Women, teachers and nurses, and she says, look, I, I, I can't do either of those things. That will kill me. <laughs> Actually, that will kill me. 
So I have to be a writer. That, that's how I'm going to survive. So she became a journalist, which was her model of, of writing then. And that was the start. Then she became a freelancer and it was writing, as she says, anything and everything that anyone would buy and writing for a market, writing for particular editors and publishers and trying to get your career happening that way. But what she found, certainly first with journalism, is that being a journalist is not the same as being a writer. They didn't meet the need that she had to be a writer, so she left journalism and became a full-time free, freelancer. And then she wrote The Half in the South. And, but even writing The Half in the South, which was a big success, didn't immediately bring her lots of money. Ruth also had five children, which is excessive, I think, for anyone, but especially if you want to be a writer. Um, so they always struggled for money. But, yeah, so she was writing novels. She was writing for the ABC. She was writing the Harry Knows Wombat and uh, children's books and uh, all kinds of things. Thoughtlets from Thoreau. I remember she used to write these little things for the newspaper. Anything that paid. Some of the, as we were saying before, some of this she didn't publish under her own name. But she, there is a point where she's like, okay. I've published a number of novels. I've won some prizes. I'm making a living from my writing. It's not a great living, but I'm doing it. This is the life I want. Ah, why aren't I happy? Why is this such a disaster? And she was really, and this is the moment <laughs> poor Rihanna is like, hmm, wait a minute. I was like, I've, I don't know if I can go on now. <laughs> it's like, I'm so What sorry. will happen next? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it, that really, for her, I... This is the way, reading between the lines in her letters and um, the biographical, autobiographical stuff, it seemed to me that the problem was that she had become disconnected from the part of her that needed to write. Ironically enough, by writing absolutely anything for anyone, but becoming a journeyman by, by writing for a living, she actually disconnected from that desire to write that sprang from a different place. And I really don't want to attack her in any way because she was an amazing writer. And the things she, worked, she wrote often were not commercial. She's often presented as this really commercial writer. But some of her works, after The Half in the South, uh, a little-known novel called The Witch's Thorn. I don't know if anyone's read that. Oh, my goodness. It's this incredible portrait of a, a very disadvantaged child in New Zealand. And it's so bleak. But uh, anyway, what she would have written if she had had the opportunity, if she had had, as she says, a patron uh, or a sucker to, to pay for her, <laughs> she, she didn't know. She forgot because she just had to write so much, so fast, whatever was required at whatever time. And she was so, so good at it. But that sense of what is it that I want to write? What is it that I need to say? She just lost touch with that. And that, I think, and then she was like, I need some time. I need, I need some time to think. I need to travel. I need to sort of fill, fill the well a bit. I need to be on my own. But do you think that that also, you know, when it comes to the money side of things, that that's what stifled her creativity in a way? I mean, that's kind of what I read between the lines and I don't want to be like a Ruth hater right now because I absolutely loved her. But I just felt that she had got to that point where because she was writing for money and she needed to write for money, that if she'd had that extra time where she didn't feel that pressure for the novels that she produced, that perhaps it would have been to her liking. I mean, even though she did... You know, she got the critical accolades, but it felt like for her that wasn't enough because she felt she didn't have enough time or didn't have that creative space to be able to really put herself fully into those books that she was she was producing. Yeah, yeah, I I'm really torn with this because I also know that because she had to write so fast and to such deadlines and for money, she did actually write these amazing books. So that pressure that was in her life, that conflict, 
was actually really productive. And perhaps if she hadn't had that kind of pressure, maybe she wouldn't have written some of those books. So there's kind of, it's actually the case with older women, even though like Gwen complaining about her children and her husband's demands, she wrote some of her best poems about that. And that conflict that just about drove, tore her apart and destroyed her life, that's at the heart of her best work. So it's kind of like you don't want to take out those negative things. Those, those, yeah. But in terms of Ruth, I do. I just wish that maybe when she was 40, she could have had like 10 years off. Maybe just somebody just given her a huge amount of money. And then what might she have done instead of having to keep churning this stuff out? And when I read, I read her, her journal while she was writing her autobiography. And it's really, I was really surprised by how much she talks about writing to please a particular audience and a particular view of, of, that people have of her. So she wasn't really, she didn't really set out to kind of explore or set out her whole self and her whole life. She, she wrote in a, t to create a particular idea of herself that she knew people already had and that people loved about her. So that the book would sell and you know, people didn't really need to know or want to know who she really was. And that's kind of a bit sad. I just wish that she could have put that down and just written more like her actual diary is, more like straight out of what is my actual experience. But she just, her sense was that that wouldn't sell. I can't put that in, that, that, that's not going to work. So somehow, you know, writing, you have to find a publisher, you have to find a market. That's absolutely, otherwise nobody listens to what you say. So yeah, but on the other hand, that can be this really distorting factor. It can be, yeah, have a really negative effect. So Anne-Marie, after everything that you've learnt from delving into these women's lives, how do you view your own writing? Has it made you think about how you view your creativity, how you, you know, think about your vocation? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, when I started reading, when I really started working on this book... I was really interested in the idea of vocation. I'd been reading lots of little bits and pieces, autobiographical bits and pieces and letters and compulsively read other people's letters. And I was just so drawn to the fact that they were like, I must be a writer. And I was like, what is this? Where does this come from? What does it mean if you have that feeling? And I guess in terms of my own life, I, I'm probably in the... Like, well, this is Janet Frame saying, who do I think I am to be a poet? That's been my kind of, you know, working class girl, a girl. And, you know, there are all these really great people out there who should be writers, who've got important things to say, but, you know, I'm not one of those people. So that problem of just, but yeah, I do kind of really want to write. The problem of just owning, owning your own vocation, like working on these women's lives made me realise that having a sense of vocation doesn't have to mean a particular thing. It doesn't mean that you're going to be J.K. Rowling. It doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be a full-time writer. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to write a particular type of book. or what it, You can make it be whatever it's going to be. It's going to take the shape that you have. And, that, and that's what these writers who had lovers and children and menopause and all of this stuff, you know, they actually... They were all writers, and these writers were particularly successful, but there are a lot of women who had a strong sense that they were meant to be writers too, who did do writing, but who never became as famous. And that vocation is just as valid. It's, it's really about that inner sense of identity. And that's, I guess, well, that's where I came to anyway, just that sense of it doesn't have to look a particular way. It doesn't have to be full-time writing. It doesn't have to be huge success. It is about who you are. 
and that need to express yourself and that the pleasure that you can have in words and in putting words down on the page and that perhaps that need to communicate. So I guess in some ways, yeah, I, it raised a bunch of questions for me and it answered some of them. Do you downplay your talent? <laughs> what talent? <laughs> no, it was just such an instinctive thing. It is really, I do, I do find it really hard to say, yeah, yes, I'm a writer. Yes, I've got something to say, you know. Huh, yes, just, this is my book. Yeah, yeah right, <laughs> exactly, yeah. And there's lots of kind of, you know, well, I'm an academic and I'm, you know, there's other identities that seem more kind of okay than that particular identity. I think we might need a therapist up here soon. <laughs> yeah, after those daddy issues, I tell you what. Oh, I know. <laughs> How do you think Gwen, Dorothy, Christina and Ruth would go with yeah. the armchair critic and the online world of people critiquing their work. <laughs> yeah, I can't kind of imagine. Well, I mean, Christina Stead was extremely cantankerous, so I actually would back her against a troll any day. <laughs> She's just like, wow. But I just can't. I know Ruth Park said that she, she stopped reading reviews, and some of her reviews were awful. I've read some of them. They're just horrifying. And, you know, really, if you read that and listened to it, you'd stop writing straight away. So maybe it would be just like, don't read the comments. But I actually think it could have been extreme. And Gwen, Gwen Howard, very responsive to her. She really wrote as part of a community and she wanted to be... To, to, yeah, she, that's how she saw herself. As it was not really a private thing, but a public thing, participating. So if she was getting all this really negative feedback back, and let's face it, most of it is negative, I think that could have just shut her down completely she could be very bold and radical but she, in in her personal life she was quite timid so how you negotiate that maybe maybe they would have created online avatars that's what they would have done because because Gwen wrote under pseudonyms and that that's freed true. her up yeah and so maybe that's what they would have done they would have, they would have faked it yeah well if you'd like to thank uh, help me thank Anne-Marie Priest Anne-Marie is now just going to quickly make her way past the hordes of fans. Keep walking, keep walking. And I'd like to thank Rihanna Patrick. That was a fabulous in conversation.